We have come to our fourth installment in this series that we are doing called From Egypt to the Promised Land. And in this, our fourth installment, uh, the subtitle is Passover, My Substitution. And uh, we'll take at least two, two probably two uh, installments on uh, just walking through uh, Passover. Now, uh, we need to do a little bit of review just so that we kind of all get back on the same page. Uh, I wasn't uh, at the pulpit last week. So, uh, spiritual geography. Remember we talked about spiritual geography? Uh, in spiritual geography, we simply stated that uh, you have Egypt, you have the Sinai or the wilderness, and you have the promised land. Now, I'm going to get back to that in a second. Uh, but, uh, and we said that, we, we took that from, we also acquainted that with uh, Corinthians, where it talks about the, the natural man, the uh, carnal man, and the spiritual man. And uh, in the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul gives a summary of the Exodus. He actually runs through a summary of the Exodus. And in that summary, in two verses, he repeats this same concept. These things happened to them as example and were written down as warnings for us. So the Exodus isn't just some historical event. It actually is there to teach us, to, imply, to involve us. Now, what we mentioned also in one of, if I believe it was the first installment, we said once we settle ourselves into geography and we figure out where are we geographically, we said we also then have to take on the five stages or experiences in the development, in the spiritual development. I mentioned those five stages. Those five stages, oh, there's not up there, are Passover. The Red Sea, the desert, the Jordan, and the conquest of, of Canaan. There they are, you have them on your screen. We said Passover is salvation. The Red Sea is water baptism. The desert is carnal living. Jordan is baptism by fire. And number five, conquest of Canaan is the victorious Christian life. Now, having said that, Someone mentioned something to me, and I realized, maybe I need to clarify one more concept here. And I'll try to be brief. Uh, geography, which is usually not the favorite of classes of most people in school, because uh, you have to remember places and situations and capitals of countries and regions. Uh, geography is about a location, right? It's a location. It's a spot. On the map. And uh, we said spiritual geography means you are on the map. You are either in Egypt, you are either in the wilderness, or you're in the promised land. It is a state of being. Placed there, one by nature, the others by God. Now, there is development. We are now going to begin the actual stages of development. Today we are going to begin with Passover. Now that's a development. That is our significant, a significant event in our lives. It was a significant event in the lives of the Hebrews. It will be a significant event in our lives. Alright? So development is 
the events in our life. Now we're missing one, and, uh, and it's perhaps because I've not mentioned it that some were a wee bit confused. Now if we get into this next stage, we would be here doing a series of messages well into the autumn. And uh, I've learned that you guys don't do well when I make a series go a couple of years long. It just doesn't, uh, doesn't work well uh, with this crowd. Anyway, so we won't do that. What is the other? What is the other uh, clarification? It is feelings. Watch this. You have geography, development, and then you have feelings or emotions. Now, what I mean by that is someone might say, well, you know, there's days I wake up and I feel like I'm in Egypt. Alright? And that's okay. I mean, it happens. A Christian who knows God, who's been born again, who knows that Jesus is his Savior, can, could wake up on a given day and feel like he's still in Egypt. Why? Well, it's real simple. Sin. Sin in your life will separate you from your relationship with God, your communion with God. You feel bad, you feel dirty, you feel like you're in Egypt. What's the key word there, folks? Feel. Feel. Now you can feel like you're in Egypt, but you're not in Egypt. They never went back to Egypt. Once you're out of Egypt, you're out. Once God saves you, He saves you, you're out. There's, there is no going back. So, whether or not you feel something, doesn't mean that your geographical location has changed. Just that you feel that way. You can be a victorious Christian, you're living your life for God, and there's, way, there's times that you just feel dry, you feel like you're in the desert. You go through low points for some reason, it just, you know, situations are, and you feel like you're back in the desert. That doesn't mean you're in the desert, it just means you feel like it. So what I'm trying to say is, do differentiate geographical and emotional. Geographically, we've said you can only be in Egypt, or in the wilderness, or in the promised land. Emotionally, I'm not even going to get into that, because we'd be here for a couple of hundred years just talking about emotions. Okay? Because really that's, uh, you know, it just goes up and down as, uh, as you wake up that day. But, it, but your Christianity ought not to be based on emotions. But on the facts of the Word of God. But we can't run away from emotions. So sometimes it's about learning how to deal with our emotions. Having said that, we can go on to our first stage, which is in the spiritual development, which we said is Passover. Now... Because I lost half of you already, and this is just like the introduction. All right, let's pray and see if we can all regroup one more time. All right, Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. It is a beautiful day, and uh, what even adds to it is that your Son, the Lord Jesus, shines in our hearts. And Father, as we gather our thoughts this morning, we ask that your Spirit would teach us, that you would challenge us, each one in stage of our own individual life and our own individual developments. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so, Passover. Now in our last installment we sort of prepared for the Passover. Uh, we looked at the fact that God challenged all the gods of Egypt. At least He challenged the, 
most important ones, ten of the most important ones. And God established the premise through that challenge that He alone is God. That He alone is Yahweh, the I Am, the self-sustaining God. He alone has power. He showed His power over all the other ten gods there in Egypt. And that He alone, and only He, can save from slavery. He established that through those plagues. He pointed clearly to all who He was. Who his, what His power was. So that was Passover then. Now what's Passover now? What is Passover now? I want to read a few verses from the New Testament as we kind of rev up into looking at Passover. Uh, the Apostle John, uh, in, in the Gospel, in his first chapter, uh, quotes John the Baptist. As Jesus comes to the River Jordan for his baptism, uh, John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, folks, if you have been in church for a while and been taught from Scripture, you, you know what that means. Now, under normal, regular circumstances, most people, you tell them, explain that to me, and unless they understand the Exodus, the Passover, that tenth plague, and what it means, they really can't explain what John meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because it is tied directly into Passover. And why didn't he explain it? It would have been so easy if they would explain some of those verses, you know. Why don't they do that? Well, because he wasn't talking to Gentiles. He was talking to, to Jews. He didn't have to explain it. It's, it's, their, it's, their, it's their culture, it's their religion. It's very much embedded into their, into their way of thinking. So all he says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. They knew what that meant. He was saying, there is our Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't go around the bush. I mean, he just states it right there and then. You know, he says, Christ, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. You can't get any more direct than that. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, uh, the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. All those verses and many more, are a direct showing of Passover. They link themselves to Passover. To a Hebrew, it's clear what he is saying. They don't even have to think twice. They know what Yom Kippur is all about. So now, having perhaps looked at a 
just a few verses of the New Testament in regards to Passover. Let us go back to Exodus chapter 12 and look at the requirements for that Passover lamb. Alright, we're going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 12 uh, today, and the next time I get a chance to get behind the pulpit. Uh, but we're only going to look at just a few verses today. So would you look at verse 5 and verse 6, Exodus chapter 12 that re- uh, Ralph read to us. It says in verse 5, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it. Until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now I do hope you were following. Uh, That is NASB, that's New American. If you're looking at an NIV, you might have seen just a wee bit of a difference. We'll get to that. I hope you did notice it because it's important. Now, in verse 5, we're taught... That the requirements for the Passover lamb begin with, it has to be a male. Has to be a male. What do the scriptures tell us in regards to Messiah? Uh, uh, Isaiah tells us, a son, a son is born. Male. The angel says to Joseph in that dream about Mary, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for He will save, and that is from the same root word, Yeshua, the two words are the same root, for He the Savior will save the people from his sins. He's speaking about Messiah. Messiah had to be a male, no question. So, just as the Passover lamb had to be a male, the Lord was a male. Unblemished was the second. First Peter 1, we just read, without blemish, without spot, it could, and why did God throw that in? Ah, because He knows the human heart. He, he does. He knew that if He didn't tell us that it had to be an unblemished one, when, 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 when Passover came, when Kippur came, it was time to sacrifice lamb, what would we do? We picked the runt of the litter. We picked the one that was sick, the one that had a broken leg. We picked the one that didn't look good. You know we do. Don't you do that? The truth is, we usually give God everything that's used. You don't buy furniture and give it to the church or give it to a needy family. What do you do? You buy furniture for yourself, you take your used one and you give it to them. Right? Isn't that what we do? I mean, are we being honest with each other? We, 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 we buy something new and then to feel good, instead of throwing it away, we look for someone to give it to and give them the problem. You know, and all you have to do is work in some place where you receive clothes or anything to give out, and you look at some of the stuff that gets given, and you go, "Are you kidding me?" You know, the poor people wouldn't take this. Oh, but you feel good because you gave it away. Can I hear an amen from anybody? Yeah, I knew we would say that. Why? Because there's a way we are. So God says, "I'm blemished. I want what the best. I don't want leftovers." And that's a principle, folks. The principle we're thinking about. So it was to be an unblemished male. Number three, it had to be a one-year-old. Uh, Kyle and Dalich in his commentary explains the concept of the one-year-old. It says, full, fresh vigor of its life. The concept, full, fresh vigor of its life. Uh, and Luke 
uh, as uh, Jesus is being presented for the baptism, it says that he came at the age of 30. You know, being about 30 years of age. That's a good, vigorous time in life. Number four, keep it till the 14th day. Why were they to pick it and then hold on to it for 14 days? To be observed thoroughly. For public inspection. Why did Jesus spend three years teaching his disciples? I mean, couldn't the Holy Spirit just have done whatever the work was? You know, by osmosis? I mean, they continue to learn. We continue to learn. Or was it about him only? In that Jesus himself had to be put into public scrutiny, public inspection. There was the temptation in the wilderness. There is Hebrews chapter 4 that tells us, Tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. There is Pilate at the end of the life of Jesus. He is about to be uh, taken off to, to uh, Calvary to be crucified. And, and, and Pilate says to the crowd, I find no fault in him. He had been put to public scrutiny, to public inspection, kept for 14 days as it were, and found to be unblemished. And then there's the fifth point that uh, is worth taking attention. I mentioned if you are reading the NIV, you might have noticed a, a different thought here. It says the whole assembly is to kill it. All the people were to kill it. Now if you're reading in the NIV, it says to kill them. It doesn't say to kill it. It says to kill them. Now the them is very simple, because it wasn't one lamb. Would you look with me at verse 3 again of chapter 12? Notice what the command is to the people. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. God is telling this to Moses, saying, On the tenth of this month, they, plural, are each to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households. A lamb for each household. So it wasn't one lamb. It was one lamb per household. Actually, you will learn a little further down as you read the whole rule to this. Is And if your household is too small to eat a lamb, well, two small households get together and you get two houses eating one lamb, sacrificing one lamb. No waste. That sort of a situation. So why does it say the whole assembly is to kill it? In the original, it is singular. It, not them. Because even though many lambs were being sacrificed, it was a prophetic event looking forward to the one lamb. Which one? The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It wasn't he saw... X amount of lambs being slaughtered. He only saw one lamb. The one that was slain from the foundation of the earth. Now how many lambs were slaughtered? Because one of the things that is so hard to conceive about Judaism is that it's all about blood. Let me just give you an idea here. In Exodus uh, chapter uh, 12... 
verse 37, and chapter 38, verse 36, we are told that the men were counted that came out of the Exodus of age 20 and up. And this is what they found. 603,550 men from the age of 20 up. That's over half a million males. Why 20 up? They were ready for battle. They are the ones that are willing and prepared to fight. Their army. So they do a census. They only count the males and only the ones that can defend the families. So you got 600,000 men. At best, and in the most conservative numbers, you're going to think, well, there's a, probably at least 600,000 women. So now you got a million point two. And assuming that if they have families, and they all have a television set, they only have one child. Right? So now you have 1,800,000. You're shy of 2 million. That's in the most conservative numbers. They could have reached some, even jumped the number as high as 4 million people. But let's stay with the conservative numbers. 600,000 families. Say that not all the 600,000 families had television, so they had more children. And some had television, so they had small uh, families. So as a result of that, the ones with the television would have to get together to slay the, the lamb. So if we take those numbers and we cut it down that not all were large families, here's what you get. Somewhere between 300,000 lambs and maybe as many as 500. And those are conservative numbers were slain in one night. And you are to take the lamb from the sheep or from the goats. And they were to be one year old. Now some of the linguists argue whether one year old means one year old or anything from eight days old to one year old. Folks, the point is, on that night, a bunch of lambs were killed. Do you understand that? Can you see the grossness in the situation? Is it dawn on you it's about blood? It's about blood, folks. It's not about roasted lamb. It's about blood. And they were then to take that blood and put it on the doorpost. I'm going to talk a lot about that the next time I get a chance to the pulpit. So, those verses looked forward prophetically to the one perfect, sacrificial Lamb of God who would be slain by all, for all. One Lamb. Now, point two. Remember I said it's all about blood? God calls that blood, that ceremonial blood, in the book of Leviticus, He calls it most holy. Sacrosanti. Most holy. Leviticus 17 tells us this. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The blood was all about the blood. In the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 20 and 22 I extract a few thoughts from those two verses. This 
is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's about blood. When you think about what it must have been as they were in the wilderness, as they were in the, as after the temple is built, the brazen altar outside, and the, the constant flow of blood of animals being sacrificed. We can't imagine that because we just don't. You go out and buy your meat nice and packaged. How many of you have ever killed a chicken? Oh, isn't it fun? And of course, if you have children, when you kill the chickens, you know, because my, my, my parents always did this, you know, you always cut the head off of the chicken and let it go. Well, okay, you don't hear, but you see it flapping around. You know? And then, and then, because the kids had fun watching the chicken, you know, and then mom would grieve you a rag and say, okay, now go clean it all up. <laughs> you know, it, ugh, some of you went, ugh. Well, that's just a chicken, folks. Try 300,000 lambs. It's about blood, folks. And it's not that Jehovah was a bloodthirsty God. He had a lesson he needed to teach. Jesus, Scripture says, shed His blood so that we can be forgiven and accepted by God the Father. Faith. I hear once in a while people say, if I have faith, I know God will receive me. All I need is faith. Said, so, folks, you need faith. Yes, I will not say no. But you better understand what that faith is for. Because if you don't, you won't faith won't be just enough. There is something here with this this whole thing. In, in the passage it says that they were to use hyssop to apply the blood to the doorpost. Now, um, they tell us that this is a very common weed. Uh, it's not something out of the norm. It's something that was found everywhere. And they were just to use it sort of like a paintbrush, you know, dip it in the blood and put it on the doorpost. They've always acquainted hyssop with faith. Easily found at your disposal. You just have to know what to use it with. What? Blood. Your faith has to be on the blood of the Son of God who died and gave Himself for you. Now, we want to come to the last part of our message which is our title, Substitution. Passover is substitution. I want to talk about something called penal substitution. And see if we understand what this is because we are involved in this whole event. Penal substitution is the penalty which was our due was diverted to another. The penalty which ours is ours is diverted to another. Penal substitution. Someone else pays for our crime. Bottom line. The hymn writer says, We may not know, we cannot tell, what pains he had to bear. But we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. He for us. So our conscience is pacified by the knowledge that our sins have already been judged and punished. There was judgment 
placed. And we were found guilty, folks. We are judged and found guilty. But steps in one to say, I will take the punishment. That is penal substitution. That is the Passover lamb. What that poor little lamb do? I mean, 300,000 lambs in the most conservative number had to be killed all in one night. And I wonder if those little lambs could talk what they would say. You know, what I do. What did those animals do to deserve to be killed so that Adam and Eve would have skins to be covered? What did the animals do? Nothing. Substitution. One must die for another to live. Penal substitution. This is what um, John Bunyan writes in regards to Christian as he comes to the cross at Calvary. Uh, as he sees the cross, he's about to come up. Uh, John Bunyan writes, as I told you a little bit about it when we started the first uh, installment. Right, uh, he writes this. If thou my pardon hast secured, and freely in my room endured, the whole of what divine payment God cannot twice demand. First from my bleeding surety's hand, and then again from mine. He says, he won't demand it twice. He already got it from one, he won't come and demand it from me again. That's why you come to Christ you're out of Egypt forever because one was judged and punished on your behalf no one can be punished twice even our own penal codes accept that you know if, if you either acquitted or fully charged and punished for a crime they can't come back and judge you again the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 tells us that. I want to close with an illustration of penal substitution. It's a story that um, is told. Uh, it's actually a, a fiction, uh, not a fiction, it's a real character. It's told among the Cherokee Indians in the Appalachian Mountains in the United States. That's on the East Coast. And um, I want to read this to you. It's called the Cherokee Legend of Sali, spelled T-S-A-L-I. It was a Cherokee Indian. In 1838, 17,000 Cherokee Indians were forced by General Winfield Scott to struggle in the mass from western North Carolina to Oklahoma. More than 4,000 perished on that terrible trail of tears. Now so that you get an idea from, from the Appalachian Mountains of, uh, of Tennessee, West Virginia to Oklahoma, so just so you get an idea, I've driven that because my, we have family in, in Nebraska and I, I know that it would take me about 18 hours to drive. No sleeping, just pump gas and keep going. 18 hours. Imagine what it would take walking. That's why 4,000 perished in that. But in that, in that whole situation, there was a family, a fellow by the name of Sali, and this is what's told. In the conflict, 
Before the cruel removal, Salih's wife had been murdered by a drunken United States soldier, who in turn was then killed by Salih and his kinsmen, three of his, uh, two of his sons and uh, his brother-in-law. Consequently, Salih also escaped into the depths of, the, of America's largest virgin forest, along with a thousand other Cherokees. A thousand Cherokee Indians just simply revolted and said, we are not going to Oklahoma. And they went into the, into the depth of the forest and hid. And so did Salih. Now, he's killed an American officer, right? We continue to read here. Salih also escaped. Eventually, a trusted friend of Salih transmitted Scott's or General Scott's compromise proposal. If Salih and his kin would surrender to be shot, the remainder of the tribe, that's the thousand that hid in the woods, The remainder of uh, um, the remainder of the tribe would uh, oh I lost um, anyway would be spared. They would be spared if Salih would surrender. After days of anguish, Salih with his sons and brother-in-law walked unescorted into Bushnell, which is where they were gathered this this village, to face certain death. What brought him? White soldiers never could have found him while he was hiding in a cave near a place called Clinton's Dove. Never would have found him if they would have tried. Despite a burning desire to live, love brought him to die. The rifles rang out and three men died. And a thousand Cherokee Indians were freed to remain in the Great Smoky Mountains. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Out of love for his suffering people, Salih willingly offered himself as a substitutionary, satisfactory sacrifice. He died so that others would be able to live. When you study, look into, read, into what's called penal substitution. One subtitle that you will find inevitably will be something like this. Substitution, a mystery. Substitution and its mystery. The mystery of substitution. We all, everyone comes back to that at one point or another. Simply to state this. Greater love has no man than this. That a man laid down his life for a friend. You say, I can understand that. We've seen that. How many have died for in place of someone else. What I don't understand is how blood makes it so that all can live. All who apply the blood can live. I don't understand how that works. There is a mystery to that. But the truth of the scriptures is that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
today's Communion Sunday. And as we prepare for the elements, it is of no surprise that I chose to put it at the end today. Folks, because you need to remember, there was blood shed for the sake of many. For the sake of all who would believe. And these elements are here to remind us, someone died in my place. And if to you that is a hard concept, then the whole thing of dying and sacrificing and blood and all that, you're having a hard time with that. Listen, you got to get over it. Because if you don't, he who does not have the Son does not have life. There is no other way. No blood, no life. You must apply the blood of Christ to your life by faith. Because it's when he sees the blood that the angel of death passes over. These elements remind us of one and one thing only. The Lamb of God was sacrificed for us. We were judged and found guilty. And he stepped forward and said, I will die in their place. If you but apply the blood, you will find rest. Let us bow our heads and prepare our hearts for communion.